This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Today, I have got a rather controversial question to ask you. Something you wouldn't expect, um, you know, a pastor of a church to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I like asking questions. We want to ask more questions than we provide nicely packaged answers. Is that all right? Because I think we need to grapple with these things ourselves as well, not just kind of swallow things we're told. So the question I want to consider this morning, and by the way, I just want to say, Emma, I like your fingernail polish. Is that gold on there? It's brilliant. Really good, really classy girl. Okay, so uh, this rather serious question is, uh, was Jesus or is Jesus divine? Oh, you didn't expect me to say that, did you? No, you're in church. You are in church, don't worry. You're not at an atheist convention or anything like that. But was Jesus or is Jesus divine? And that's a question that you may have actually turned over in your own mind at some point in life. I mean, maybe now you're having this conversation with yourself. Uh, Things like um, when you have... When you go through a hardship and suffering, and you're like, I cannot believe this is happening to me. Why would God allow this to happen to me? One of the questions is, well, is God divine? Is God able to do anything about this situation, right? Uh, maybe, maybe someone you know or love has decided that they don't believe in God anymore, and that's kind of just shaken you because you're like, well, I'm not sure whether, God's div- whether Jesus is divine. I'm not sure whether my faith is real or not. Maybe, maybe that's, that's one of the reasons why you've thought about that before. Maybe um, you've read a book that's challenged your belief in God. Maybe you've read a book by a very articulate and intelligent person that has, has, has dissed the idea of Jesus being divine. And, and, and you're left thinking, well, if they don't believe Jesus is divine, maybe I shouldn't believe Jesus is divine. One, I have to say from a personal perspective, one of the challenges with leading a church as a pastor is that nobody expects me to ask that question of myself. Nobody expects me because you're like, hang on a minute, haven't you got rock solid faith? Haven't you got rock solid belief that Jesus is divine or Jesus was divine? And you, you, you really need me, some of you, to, to have a rock solid belief or faith that Jesus is divine, right? You need that because you're pastoring a church. Why, why would you question it? I mean, you're leading a church. Your income depends on it. Your lifestyle depends on it. Everything depends on it. Surely you believe in God. Surely you think Jesus is divine. Well, I want you to know that of course I ask that question, is Jesus divine? Of course I do. I ask that question routinely and I remain convinced every day that Jesus is divine and Jesus is actually alive in my life. But it doesn't mean I don't ask the question. It doesn't mean I don't face the same consequences or the, uh, the same issues that we all face that challenge us to ask that question. It's not a taboo question. It's an okay question to ask. And today, in episode four of Who is Jesus, we're going to see that the disciples asked that question. In fact, everyone asked that question about whether Jesus was divine. And we're going to explore that today. This, this box set series I'm doing is called Who is Jesus? And so it's a really good question to ask yourself. Because you, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you've been raised in the Christian church, you've been going to a church for a long time, chances are you have... You have Lots and lots of ideas about who Jesus is. And, um, and some of those appear to be black and white. They appear to be kind of rigid and established. Uh, and I think when we go back to the accounts of Jesus' life, we find ourselves discovering new things about Jesus. So I want to ask yourself, ask yourself a question. Are you expecting that you might discover something new about Jesus? Are you... Are you or or are you, have you got it all wrapped up? Are you clear about who Jesus is? you know everything about him? Because I think that what we're going to discover today is it's the things we can learn about Jesus that we haven't yet learned before. Now, um, as I say, when you ask the question, who is Jesus, it throws up other questions. Questions like, 
was Jesus divine, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, but it also throws up questions like, uh, did Jesus mean to start a religion called Christianity with uh, two and a half billion adherents around the world right now? Is this what Jesus meant? Uh, did Jesus intend to create Christianity? Is that what happened? Again, if you want to find out some thoughts about that, then listen to episode three, I think it is, on or maybe episode four on our podcast. Uh, you can go back and listen or watch it yourself. So, um, what we're going to be doing is looking at Mark's account. Now, we understand that Mark um, got his account firsthand from the Apostle Peter, who was like the chief apostle. So kind of, he's the guy that Jesus hung out with the most, uh, along with James and John, and yeah, basically, I mean, you know, if you want, a, if you want a first-hand account of Jesus, then you really have got, you know, no better, no better witness than Peter. And what we have, scholars think, is in, in Mark is Peter's account. And here's the crazy thing. It is clear that throughout the time that uh, Peter and the apostles spent time with Jesus, they had so many questions about him. Uh, as we're going to discover today, there was so much to confuse them, so much to get their heads around. And we're going to discover today that actually... Um, their reaction to Jesus and their belief in Jesus was what you might not expect. So, um, we're going to turn to Mark, and if you've got a Bible, do, do turn to Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark 3. Um, you may have the Bible up on your phone. If you don't have the Bible up on your phone, then do, do get it, download it from your app store. Um, it's absolutely brilliant, easy way to find, yourself, find your way around the Bible. And so do find Mark 3 there. And this section of Mark's story um, is largely based at the seaside. Okay, so I'm not, not just talking Clevedon here. I'm talking a big inland sea, which was about the size of, well, actually it's about one and a half the size of Bristol, depending on how you measure Bristol, but about the size of Greater Bristol. Okay, imagine a big lake or a big sea about the size of Greater Bristol, from the M4 in the north all the way down to maybe Western Super around the south. And... And this was a massive sea that dominated the stories of Jesus uh, because that's where Jesus lived. Many of the, the, the names, the geographical names that you have heard of um, are all in this area. So names like Nazareth, Cana, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Magdala, Chorazin and Tiberias. All of these are just towns, villages, settlements right next to this lake. And... Um, if you've read the story of Jesus, you'll know that this is where Jesus hung out. This is where he spent most of his life. A few years ago, I was in, uh, I was in the Dead Sea area. We were staying at a little holiday inn down on the Dead Sea. And it occurred to me that if I went 30 or 40 miles that way in any direction, that was pretty much the location of all that we read about in the Bible. I'm not just talking the New Testament. All that we read about in the Bible. It's a very, very small area geographically. If you want to go... Then talk to Dan Green. Dan will sort you out with a, a little trip down to Jordan. And you can go and discover how small the area geographically is that this stuff happened. It's ridiculous. So, so small. And uh, so this is all next to the Sea of Galilee by the seaside. So Mark 3, 7 to 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the seaside. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all about uh, what he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Think of the West Country, and that's about the geographical area that they came from. Because of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the crowd, sorry, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell other people about him. So, according to Mark and to Peter, 
Jesus is wildly popular, wildly popular. Hordes of people are seeking him out. Why? Because he's healing them all. He's healing them all. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Um, what you've got to remember is that there was no NHS, that medical science was not then what it is now. And if you got ill, if you had a problem, there was very little you could do to solve it. You either lived with it or you died from it. Okay, so when someone comes along like Jesus, healing people, not just people that have got a cold, or people that have got you know, uh, flu or something like that. He's healing people that are deformed, that have got uh, uh, disablements, uh, people who've got uh, mental illnesses, people that have got physical illnesses. He's healing people left, right, and center. And so he's creating an incredible clamor. Of course, Mark mentions impure spirits here, or uh, other translations of the Bible um, denote demons. And um, the Jews thought that uh, demons or impure spirits attached themselves to people. Um, and, and Jews thought that uh, these spirits, um, that, that these spirits could tell the difference between who was of God and who wasn't. And, uh, and so these impure spirits, Mark says, shout out at Jesus and describe him as the son of God. Now let me just say here that the son of God in Jewish tradition was used to describe people who have a close relationship to God. Um, so it's used in Exodus 4.22 to describe the nation of Israel, where it's, uh, Yahweh, uh, that's the Jewish name for God, tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, who is holding the Israelites captive, if you know the famous story, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So that's the first thing. First example uh, where, where actually in Jewish tradition, the son of God is refers actually to the nation of Israel. It was also used to describe the king of Israel. Um, again, you may not know this story, but Nathan the prophet speaking in God's name about famous King David. Um, it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 14. Uh, I will be his father and he will be my son. So King David was described as the son of God. In Job 1, 6, angels are referred to as sons of God uh, and in the time of Jesus Jewish mystics were called sons of God so for Jesus to be called a son of God was not out of keeping with Jewish tradition basically people who were considered to be close to God were often given the term son of God and um, and yeah um, he, Mark describes how people with impure spirits or demons uh, would have spiritual insight to be able to tell that Jesus was also close to God um, interestingly, um, Mark then goes on to describe how uh, Jesus selects 12 of these burly, burly men. I mean, you'll, if you'd heard me talk about this, uh, forget the idea that the disciples were kind of, uh, kind of uh, well, weak, mild, kind of timid white men. They weren't. They weren't. They were beefy fishermen, okay? Uh, they, they would have been built like the side of a house. Um, and he takes 12 of them, and he selects 12 of them to be his disciples. And it says, Mark says, he gives them authority to drive out demons. Now, obviously, demon possession was a big thing at the time of Jesus. Mark wouldn't have commented on it. And to Jews, it literally was. And as I say, we need to literally take the spectacles of our modern perspectives off for a moment and just look at the world through the eyes of the contemporary people at that time. There was no NHS. There was no med modern medicine uh, that we would know of now. And so if you were sick, you were, you were condemned to a life of poverty um, and you would die young. So it's any wonder when someone like Jesus comes along 
and starts healing people, that crowds gather. I ask you, crowds would gather now in the same situation. Let me, let me, let me just say this. Um, at the time of Jesus, life wasn't what it's like now. Um, if, you've, if you're familiar with this podcast, A Bible for Normal People, and I would recommend it to you, if you, have, if you've, if you've, uh, if you listen to podcasts, do download this one and start listening to it. There's some brilliant stuff on here. But an archaeologist in this particular podcast was uh, discussing life in Galilee at the time of Jesus. And she suggested that if we had a time machine and could go back 2,000 years, we would die within weeks. Because in a very contemporaneous uh, metaphor, we would not have any immunity to the diseases that currently existed at that time. Um, and the reality is, is that life expectancy was short, nothing like modern medicine existed. And so like most traditional societies of that time, and I would argue in our day and age now, even traditional societies today, where modern medicine is not available, they used to think that physical and mental illnesses were caused by evil spirits. They had no other explanation. So anyone who could drive out demons and heal people was considered to have supernatural power and authority. So things are getting crazy. And Mark paints this incredible picture of hordes of people clamoring to see Jesus who appears to have divine authority over illness and over demons. And it says here in verse 20, then Jesus entered a house and again the crowd gathered. So he and his disciples were not even able to eat. It's kind of a weird comment that. So what? I'll just skip a meal. I don't think it means just skipping a meal. I think they were so overwhelmed with crowds of people wanting to be healed and families bringing their loved ones to be healed by Jesus that they didn't eat for days on end. Because why would, why would anybody be bothered about miss skipping a meal? I mean, I know I would, and you probably would, but I doubt they would because everything was just going crazy at the moment. So I think there was something going on there. I think they probably skipped quite a few meals because they were so overwhelmed with the number of people who were clamoring for Jesus to heal them. And of course, this is the last straw for Jesus' family. If you're familiar with the story, Jesus' family turn up. Yes, he has family. He has a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters. And they turn up and cousins. And they, like anybody else who was concerned or is concerned for a loved one who appears to be going through a mental health uh, breakdown, all they want to do is grab him, take him home for his own safety, to look after him and make him well again. His family thought he was out of his mind. And is it any wonder that Jesus said, like, who is my mother and brothers? Like, crikey, even my own family don't believe in me. It's just incredible. News of the further and chaos surrounding Jesus had even reached Jerusalem and religious lawyers have come from Jerusalem to give their assessment of Jesus. And what, what's their conclusion? It says in verse 22, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, <laughs> by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. You just imagine them saying it, which, as Jesus points out, is a kind of twisted logic. Why would the prince of demons be driving out demons? Jesus says, rather contemptuously so there's a lot of confusion about where Jesus is getting his supernatural power from is he divine is it demonic or is Jesus just out of his mind and then Mark records Jesus sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and teaching a crowd of people about the kingdom of God and this is no ordinary parable and just to be clear because we don't use the word um, parables very much in modern life we talk about parabolic but that's 
to do with maths and physics. All right, but parables, what does it mean? Well, a parable is a very simple story that illustrates a simple principle. And it was commonly used by rabbis to teach Jewish law to the everyday folk. Once again, we must take off our spectacles and look at life back then when it was, rather than through our spectacles that we wear now. And the reality is, is that life back then, people were not literate. Okay? They couldn't read or write. So Jesus and the rabbis, the other rabbis of his day, told realities, they told principles and truths to the masses in simple stories. And they made simple principles really clear using simple stories, contemporaneous situations. Like, you know, like there's a bus going past. I might tell a story about a bus going past. We know what a bus looks like. Jesus tells a story, what he calls the parable of the sower. And that is a very, very familiar image to, to the people who are listening to him. So, um, I reckon Jesus recognized there was a lot of confusion and fear and anger about his authority and power. And he could tell, it was clear to him, that some people found him irresistible and some people found his power and authority repugnant. Some people found him irresistible and some people found his power and authority repugnant. So he tells them this very simple parable. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it all up. Some fell among rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. That sounds like my garden. Um, other seed fell amongst thorns, uh, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not hear, they did not bear grain. Again, my garden. Um, still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, so whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, which is a rather cryptic way. <laughs> of saying, just listen up. Like, don't you get it? Ironically, nobody gets it. All right? Nobody seems to understand this parable, which is a parable that unlocks all Jesus' parables. If you just think of the parable of the sower as the parable that unlocks all the other parables. Okay? Jesus is making a parable about him telling a parable. Okay? So it might seem a bit odd. But nobody gets it. Get the irony. So Jesus says to them, don't you understand this parable? <sighs> How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word, okay, some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. By word, he means the truths that he's teaching. Um, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes along and takes away the word that is sown in them. Others, like seen seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown amongst thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So the irony is, and this is ironic, is at the very moment he's telling this parable, Jesus himself was sowing the word into their lives. Do you get it? Some got it and some didn't. And very little of that was to do with what Jesus was saying. It was more to do with the way they were at where the people who were listening to him were at. And although Mark doesn't record it, I think the, G I think the disciples are asking a question. Like, um, Jesus, are you being deliberately vague? Are you being deliberately like kind of like 
hiding the reality of this? Uh, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And Jesus says, of course not. Of course not. Do you bring a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into an open space. So if anyone has ears to hear, for goodness sake, just listen. I don't think he said it quite with that disdain. But the point is, is that Jesus is actually using here a rabbinic technique. Okay, now remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Okay, he's a teacher. And he was using different techniques to teach people. And this rabbinic technique is, is well used amongst rabbis. And it's a principle or a technique of slowly revealing truth. Bit by bit, a little bit at a time. We do this with, with any education technique. We build, don't we? From small to large. So with this technique, rabbis would share a little bit of insight or wisdom with their disciples and then they would watch it grow and take root in their life. And they'd just see if it would grow. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's a bit like the Chinese proverb, give a man to fish and, uh, sorry, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. What Jesus is saying here is, is that if you just allow me to plant the tiniest seed of hope in your life, it will progressively, cumulatively grow into something special. And for those of us that have received pre-packaged Christian principles and truths throughout our Christian life, for those of us that have kind of been in the church where we're just recognised that we're just really being told how to behave, for those of you that think that Christianity is about being good, take note what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is allow the tiniest, tiniest bit of hope to be planted in your life and let it grow. Just let it grow. He talks about uh, seeds. He says, you know, seeds are small and then they grow big into large trees. He uses the mustard seed. For some reason, I don't know if this is true, but a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds and it grows into the, a large tree. It's not into the largest trees because obviously that would be like a Californian redwood or something like that. But the reality is, is that the, the metaphor is there, is that it just plant, allow Jesus to plant a seed of hope, a seed of trust in your life and let it grow. Here's a question to ponder. Is faith in Jesus about being good or is it about being love? Is faith in Jesus about being good or is it about being love? Go back to episode three when we talked about did Jesus come to start a religion? Religion is empty spirituality. It's going through the motions of spiritual acts without it ever transforming the inside of you. The transformation comes through the growth of the hope that Jesus plants inside each one of us. So let's go back to the seaside and it's evening and they're tired. Jesus is knackered and he suggests crossing the sea overnight. Why? Because perhaps to be ready for the next morning. Um, I think this was a really busy time of Jesus' life. It seems like they were overwhelmed. Why else did Jesus' family come out of concern for him to take him back to his home so that he could rest? They were missing meals, like not just any one meal, but dozens of meals. This is a busy time. Jesus is in a hurry. He's got things to do. So they get back in the boat in order to save time so that the next morning they can go out on the other side of the lake and start Jesus and start preaching and teaching and healing people. So they get in the boat and uh, 
He says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took them along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, which is a kind of storm, and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you just love, like, Mark's kind of matter-of-factness about this? There's no emotion in what Mark says. I'm sure that although these, some of these men were experienced tough fishermen, um, and that they had fished in this sea since they were boys, and they'd experienced many storms, the reality is, for them to have lost hope, that storm must have been calamitous for them. I think they screamed at Jesus. Jesus, we are going to die. Sort it out. What are we going to do? And what does Jesus do? Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Just as a matter of point here, that's ridiculous, in case you were wondering. Not only is it ridiculous because it sounds ridiculous, but if you're in the middle of a storm on the sea, anybody a sailor in the room? No? Nobody's a sailor. One, one is. So when you go out sailing, even when the storm has passed, the waves are still big, aren't they? Maybe you're a surfer, you know that, right? If a storm comes through, you know the waves are going to be good for the next few days. Why? Because the storm has whipped up the, the, the sea so that the waves become big. So there's no way on earth that the waves would have just like gone calm. They wouldn't. And, what, and the word here is not just calm, it's like a mill pond. So it goes from being a storm to being a mill pond. Like, that's ridiculous. Now, listen, if I stood here and said to you, right, I'm going to stop the rain. So just look out the window, you can see it's raining. Look out, if you're at home, look outside, it's raining. I'm just going to say, stop raining now. Now, if the rain stopped and suddenly the clouds broke and the sun came out, you'd think, because we're in the, in the middle of the city centre, we've got tall buildings around us. Oh, literally, what's happened is literally it's just, the storm has just passed and it's broken and it's just a coincidence, right? So let's go up to Brandon Hill, okay, where we can see it across the city and, I'm, and it's chucking it down with rain. There's thunder and lightning and I'm going to say, be quiet, stop, be calm. And immediately the storm stops, the winds disperse, the clouds literally zip like a curtain opening and, and we, we've got blue sky and sun. Okay, and you look at me and you go, how did that happen? Was that a coincidence? And I go, well, no it wasn't, but just to prove to you it wasn't a coincidence, I'm going to make it rain again. And I go, right, thunderstorm, start again. And suddenly the clouds zoom back in and the, the thunder and lightning starts. Just imagine that for a minute if you can. Are you going to take a step back from me? Are you, are you going to go, my God. <laughs> I do not want to be near you. What the hell just happened? I mean, literally, I mean, you would use expletives to describe it as you describe it to your friends. You would not believe what happened. The disciples were terrified. No wonder they were terrified. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Incredulous. In, in, well, just incre incredible. Just, I can't even say incredulity. <laughs> Do you get my point? This was ridiculous. And what does it say? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The disciples didn't know what to make of Jesus. 
And if Jesus was here and did exactly the same thing, we would be the same. So be forgiven for wondering if Jesus is divine. Be forgiven for being slightly terrified of Jesus. Because the disciples were. In fact, be slightly terrified of Jesus. Because he can't, if you're not terrified of Jesus, you don't really get Jesus. For Jesus to claim to be divine and to behave as God, controlling the weather of all things, that should be a little bit troubling. And the problem is that Christians don't find that troubling. We just think Jesus is a nice person who does nice things, who acts just like you and me. And, and, and the fact of the matter is you can't say that about Jesus. Jesus wasn't like that. If Jesus was divine, that's massive. Is this what it's like to follow Jesus? Is it unpredictable? Is it wild? Is it terrifying? Is it unnerving? Is it confusing? Is it perplexing? Yes. Yes, it is. And yes, it was for the disciples. And like the Christian church needs to be sh shaken out of its, its kind of calmness around Jesus. If Jesus is this divine person, it should rock our world. It's just remarkable. We create this nice, pleasant Christianity based on this wild, unpredictable Jesus. Was this local peasant boy from Nazareth divine? That was the question that everyone was asking at the time, and it's the question that people continue to ask today. Looking at Jesus, of course, from this side of the resurrection and the ascension, this side, historically, of course, we find ourselves still grappling with the same question, because I'm asking you to, to believe that someone who you've never physically met or seen is divine. The reality is, is that many of you would testify to how you have encountered the divine risen, resurrected Jesus in a way that you can't quite describe because it's not physical, but it's, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's powerful. And that, that friends, is why we have this conviction that Jesus is divine, because we encounter him in our daily life, right? But make no mistake, it's hard to get your head around, isn't it? And you may not be able to get your head around it. You can believe it without really being able to get your head around it. How do we experience this? We let it grow in our lives. It's not about what we do. It's about receiving what Jesus has done. So Jesus invites us to allow him to plant the seed of hope in our lives. If you want the seed of hope in your life to grow, then just nurture it, water it. Look after it. But don't try and make it. Like, don't urge it. I don't know if you've ever gardened yourself, but you can't make your plants grow. All you can do is tend them. You plant a seed in the ground, you just hope it grows. And it will. Because that's the nature of it. It will grow. Season in, season out, it grows. And you and I can take Jesus' word and metaphor of what it looks like to have hope planted in your life. We can take it. And we can hope. So, right now, wherever you are, if you're at home, you're out jogging, listening to this in the car, don't close your eyes because you're driving. But if you're here or at home, just close your eyes for a moment. Just invite God. God, thank you that you plant the seed of hope in our lives, that you are indeed divine. And that's a terrifying thing. It's an incredible thing.
but we want to um, want to open ourselves. If you do want to open yourself, I'm not presuming you do, but if you do, then just uh, yeah, just ask Jesus to plant that seed in your life, to water it, to nurture it, to grow it. May the incredible confidence and courage and hope and joy and meaning that you derive from believing that Jesus is divine. May all of that be your experience this week. But if you've never done it before, if you're struggling with it, then just ask Jesus to grow it. As Claire said earlier, just invite Jesus to grow it. May that seed of hope and faith take root in your life and really become an incredible source of joy and hope and purpose and meaning and strength in your day-to-day, whatever you face. May the power of God rest upon you. And may the confidence that comes from knowing when we plant a seed in our garden, it's going to grow. May the confidence grow in you that when Jesus plants a seed of hope in your life, it will grow. Don't try and be religious. Don't don't do anything. Just allow it to grow. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made this possible. Amen. Amen.